You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Emma Lyons from University College Dublin, entitled Why Mourn You So, You That Be Widows? Widow's Inheritance in 17th Century Ireland. This is based on research I did a number of years ago, um, a project I started and left, jumped to the 18th century, and I'm now coming back to it. Um, so as, as I remember um, a supervisor saying at a conference, this is a work in progress. Um, any conclusions I make are done so with a degree of hesitancy. Um, so any comments and feedback on this would be um, greatly appreciated as I now get back and pr- progress this, this study. Um, so, why mourn you so, that you that be widows? Consider how long you have been in subjection under the predominance of parents, of your husband. Now you may be free in liberties and free propri viris at your own law. In the 17th century, a woman, upon her husband's death, experienced a newfound freedom with many more entitlements than she had known during her minority or coverture. When she was a child, she was under her parents' control. And when she married, she was submissive to and totally dependent on her husband, with all legal rights entrusted in him. A woman's personal property was vested entirely in her husband. The property she had entering marriage became her husband's property, and the property she earned during marriage also became her husband's. Um, Here we go. She, as a femme covered, could not enter contracts, nor could she sue or be sued independently. A wife, therefore, was considered a jurial minor with, um, under common law. She could not make a will, and if she did so without permission, it was not taken to be legally effective under the 1634 Statute of Uses, nor was she permitted to enter into contracts on her own behalf. However, her husband may have occasionally entered into agreements or fought legal bat- battles on his wife's behalf, especially in the cases that centred upon law and um, land and goods. Moreover, she did not have access to credit, which prevented her from engaging in activities such as shopping or shopkeeping. And as Kevin Costello notes, suppliers or retailers were, after all, unlikely to advance goods or credit to a customer from whom their debt could not be recovered. And these facts had far-reaching effects on the dowry a wife brought to her marriage. Once she married, as we saw, the husband received control of her property, both real and personal, and she was powerless if her husband should squander it. Although, according to common law, a husband was supposed to ask his wife's permission to alienate property she had brought to the marriage. And although permission was to be sought from the wife, many families aimed to protect their daughters by arranging trusts, a device into which money could be channelled to the wife free from her husband's claims, a technique used from the 16th century. If the husband alienated the land without her permission, she could demand the dower against the purchaser 
as happened in the case of Lady Anne Clifford against her husband Richard Sackville III, Earl of Dorset. And perhaps this is why Roebuck Lynch wrote to his wife Alice in April in 1635, informing her that, quote, his brothers-in-law were, um, were selling their share of land in Borshul for £2,000, but stressed that he did not intend on selling that share unless she gave her consent, especially as she had brought the land to the marriage. And he wrote, I will not join without your consent, having had that fortune by you. And his statement that her advice, though a woman's, was to prove successful unto me in this, for your prayer to be to God, I find the comfort of your virtue and judgment. And this illustrates some, that some men did adhere to the law and seek their wives' advice when entering business contracts, especially when it concerned property the wife had brought to the marriage. The above quote from the law's resolutions on women's rights appears, therefore, them to have some accuracy uh, in its assessment of women's position after coverture, when she, as a widow, would have had more rights and freedom than at any point before. While it can be argued that this, to some extent, has some validity, an examination of wills relevant to the legal statutes um, will provide a snapshot and a very much stressed a snapshot into widows' inheritance in the 17th century and the degree to which common law and the statutes are reflected in the wills that I've examined for the paper. Now, given the time constraints, the main focus of this paper is going to concentrate on property um, and women's input into decisions concerning the estate and their, um, their portion and the bequests that they were granted by their husbands in their wills. As we've just seen in the case of Alice and Roebuck Lynch, some men included their wives in the economics of family fin financial matters during their marriage, and this would have included husbands leaving their wives in charge of their children's inheritance during their minority. And this can be observed in the will of Christopher Nugent, Baron of Delvin, who stated in 1602 that his heir was to be ruled, advised and directed by my wife and overseers, thus demonstrating that although the law may not have catered for women in positions of responsibility, men could and did recognise their wives' competency in important matters, such as guiding sons in their decisions until they became of age and distributing goods and property upon the death of their husbands. And this is further illustrated by the number of wills in which a wife is appointed executrix. Now, most of the wills that nominate a wife executrix were written between the 1650s and 1690s, and the majority that nominated a wife sole executrix between the 1650s and 80s. And of the wills I examined, 26% nominated a wife executrix, and of that percentage, 58 named her the sole executrix. Um, the remaining wills appointed a wife joint executrix with sons, nephews, cousins or other males, normally close friends of the family. And examples of wills which appoint a wife sole executrix include those of William Nugent of New Haggart, County Meath, who appointed his wife Marion Careyford to this position, and Alderman William Layden of Dublin, who in 1662 also confirmed this responsibility on his wife Eleanor. In 1689, Thomas Keeley of Kilkenny appointed his well-beloved, though unnamed wife, joint executrix with his nephew, Richard Keeley, 
while Edmund Perry of Wexford named his wife executrix along with his son in 1654. And John Mulholland in 1671 also appointed his dear and beloved wife Anne, named this time, um, joint executrix with Thomas Coote of Coote Hill and his son John Owen. Moreover, he also appointed the above people to be overseers in addition to naming them as guardians of his sons and then again displaying that while not necessarily the sole executrix or guardian, um, many husbands relied on their wives' input into important matters um, and this um, respect followed um, into the bequests that husbands made to their wives in the will. And as, no, as we noted above, Common law was widely practiced, practiced for the previous three centuries, um, and this practice was followed into the 1696 Act for the Better Settling in Intestate Estate, which declared that a widow was to receive no less than one-third of her husband's estate, one-half if there were no children. And while this may initially be seen as a boost for women's um, physicians, it in fact sometimes proved detrimental, as should a man die intestate, his wife would now receive the minimum one-third only, and not more as she may have done prior to 1696. Therefore, um, sorry, there are numerous examples of um, which support this claim that men did leave their wives more than the one-third due to them. And one example being the will of John Bernard of Dublin, who left his wife Emmet property in Ireland and in England. Um, so Richard Banbridge of Kinsale also bequeathed his wife Marjorie his entire estate in 1662, as did William Meredith of Kilcullen. Um, Richard Barry of Dublin in 1648 bequeathed his wife one-third of his estate um, and the use of the full estate also. And while these wills clearly state that the wife inherited more than the one-third legally due to her, the majority were much more subtle in their bequests. And it's therefore necessary in some cases to read between the lines in order to glean information regarding widows' provisions. And one way in which this can be done is looking at the stipulations in relation to, in relation to wives' inheritance. And one will in which this is exemplified is that of Robert Playstead of Galway, who bequeathed his wife Catherine all, personal, all his personal estate. However, he stipulated that if my wife commit or remarry again, then she shall have only one third of my estate, the other two thirds to my children, of which my eldest son will get double proportion. Thomas Taylor of Dublin also included this, such a stipulation in his will um, in 1682, stating that his wife Anne was to receive the res residue of his estate after all debts, legacies and funeral expenses had been paid, unless she remarried, in which case she was to receive only one-third of the residue, with the remaining two-thirds going to the children equally. It was also frequently asserted that wives were to provide for the children out of the estate that she received on her husband's death. And again, we're looking at Robert Playstead's will. He demonst it demonstrates this clearly, where he bequeathed his wife all the personal estate with guardianship of the children. Edmund Walsh of Burtown also left his widow Elizabeth, alias Stafford, 450 acres during her widowhood to enable her to do for three young sons. Examples of a husband leaving the wife the estate jointly with children 
also intimate that the wife was to provide for the children during their minority and arrange their marriage portions, especially if she should remarry. And one such illustration is the will written by William Welsh of Lickettstown in Kilkenny, who in 1675 bequeathed his estate to his loving wife and three young children for the duration of her widowhood. Another example is that of Garrett Nugent of Dublin, who stated that his wife was to have interest in his house and gardens in return for paying his children's portions. And Thomas Nugent of Moirath also bequeathed his wife, besides what she, she was assured, the rents of all my lands in trust for my daughter till, they are, till she is preferred. And the above instances may also explain why a wife may have received more than the standard one-third that we see in law. Another pattern is also, that also emerges in relation to widows being appointed guardians of and providers for their children um, during their minority. When a wife was a nominated guardian of her children, she was frequently granted the use of their portions during their minority to provide for them. And this is the case um, of Sir Richard Nugent, Earl of Westmeath, who appointed his wife, Dame Jane, guardian of his son Ignatius during his minority, stating that she was to have the issues and profits of the land while acting in the role. The custom of leaving a widow the means with which she would maintain the child or children during, their, um, during her term of guardianship is greatly contrasted when compared with men who were appointed the protector and guardian of children. In the latter case, they did not receive the use of the children's portions. Instead, they were expected to invest the money and use the annual interest to support the children. For example, Edmund Nugent of Meath appointed his brother Thomas guardian of his children in 1621, stating that he was to take charge of my children and ensure their good education, especially that of Edward, who was to study law. Thomas was not granted the use of their portions, and Theophilius Buckworth appointed his brother and cousin guardian of his daughter until she completed, um, or, sorry, until she was competent to take on the estate. Again, the absence of the use of her portion is obvious. Therefore, when husbands appointed their wives' executrix and guardians of their children, they clearly made an attempt to assist her in maintaining the children, which did, they did not do for another person, um, be it brother or cousin, who were requested to be the guardians. Um, now, this might have been due to the fact that a wife was deemed to have her children's best interests at heart. Um, it may also have been a result of the wife having received a, a small financial independence from her husband during marriage, whether it was pin money or money in trust for her, um, as we saw above. If a wife was successfully able to manage that money, then she was going to be able to successfully manage her children's money. Consequently, at her husband's death, a wife would have received more than the standard one-third she was entitled to by law. Although a wife may occasionally have inherited more than the one-third that she was entitled to, um, as displayed by the cases above, there are many instances where the re wife received an unspecified amount of, but expressly named, property. And in such cases, one must assume that it was equal to either the one-third of the estate or to the value of the goods a wife brought with her as her dowry. It must be remembered that 
At common law, a woman holding freehold land was protected by the right of the dower, the right, of life, um, the right to a life estate of the one-third of the real property held by her deceased husband. It would therefore be expected that widows' jointures and dowries would be referred um, to in their husband's wills. And this can be seen in the will of Christopher McCrutton of County Clare, who bequeathed his wife, Annie Nalen, property until she had been satisfied for her marriage portion. In many other wills, the husbands specified the quantity of property which he was bequeathing to his wife. And one such example is that of Robert Shee, who in 1566 left his wife Margaret property in lieu of her dowry. John Falk of Drogheda also left his wife Alice one-third of his land, in, and as did Tygo O'Hara from Kulani County Sligo, who also left his wife one-third of his lands in 1616. And those are just two extracts from the wills that I've put up on, on the slide. Another method used by husbands to ensure that their wives were provided for um, involved him setting land aside or having them held in trust for his wife, who would receive them on his death. Thomas Nugent of Moirath stipulated that his wife Mary was to receive the parcel of lands which he had held in trust for her. As with the above example, it is like that of Mary that had brought the land to the marriage as her jointure or dowry. While all of the above illustrations are undoubtedly of great interest, I found one will that kind of stands out for its unusual request. Um, in 1640, um, Sir Richard Nugent, Earl of Westmeath, appointed his wife, Dame Jane, executrix, adding, uh, in addition to bequeathing her all his household stuff, plate, cattle, and movable goods. However, he requested that she pay £20 for such purposes as I have declared in a note under my handwriting. Now, unfortunately, a copy of this note does not accompany the will, um, so it's really impossible to determine exactly why such a demand was made. Now, perhaps it was due to the fact that the value of the goods Jane Dame Jane was bequeathed exceeded that of the one-third that she was legally entitled. However, because she was executrix, it may be assumed that she would not be paying for this money to another individual or group of people, and perhaps it was to be designated for as a gift to religious orders or a contribution to the poor. So just before I conclude the paper, um, I just wanted to mention a few points that are important to bear in mind in relation to widows' treatment in wills. Although largely well provided for by their husbands, the majority of bequests a wife received on her husband's death were actually rightfully hers, having brought them to the marriage as her dowry or jointure. And this is clearly displayed by the number of wills which stipulated that the goods a wife was to receive besides what she brought with her, um, you know, or that in addition to um, what was her property. Furthermore, a wife was often placed in a subsidiary position to her son, receiving either what her son was not bequeathed or the husband's second best goods, um, the best items going to the son. And limitations also plagued a wife's holdings, the most usual be restriction being for her lifetime, for her natural life or during her life. And other limitations, as we saw above, was for a woman, woman's widowhood only, as we witnessed in Hugh O'Neill's will, which may have been employed due to the fact or the fear of a wife's remarriage. And this was probably a result of a man's desire, as Amy Louise Erickson put it, 
to protect his own and his children's property from the grasp of any future husband of his widows or of her children from another man. A further restraint included during a child's minority, implying that the wife was permitted the use of the child or children's portion until they were 21 or got married. Um, another limitation was a punishment if she was to challenge the will. And this can be seen um, in the will of Sir William Sands in 1687, um, who stated that if my wife, Dame Grace, attempt any reversal of this will, she shall forfeit the bequests therein made to her. Um, this restriction may have been implemented in order to protect the inheritance of a male heir, the primary concern of a father. The third point, just very briefly, I know I'm coming close to time, is that the fact that ordinary husbands or those of you know, more ordinary means were inclined to leave their wives, wives more in their wills than those who were wealthy um, or had a large estate. And one example was Rafe Cahurst, a haberdasher in Dublin, who bequeathed that his wife was to carry on the business with the advice of the executors after his death. Um, so some, you know, men clearly were recognised that their widows were to inherit um, after their death and would do as much as they could to ensure that their well-deserving wife would receive all their goods um, and estate on death and then with, again, with limitations. Um, many men also included stipulations that the executors um, were to implement, which included um, showing, again, that men were from some extent, dictating what their wives would do on, on their death. Um, and then, I kind of say, even after her husband's death, the wife was, to some extent, still under her husband's control. Um, it was the husband who decided where his wife would live or what she would receive after his death, not to mention having to follow the instruction in his will and maintain their children according to his wishes. Furthermore, a husband frequently imposed restrictions and limitations on a wife's inheritance, in addition to stipulating that she should be punished for contesting or her bequests. Now, despite the fact that a wife rarely was given full discretion on her husband's death, she was nonetheless provided for by her husband and experienced some more independence than she would have known before, um, and perhaps more than she was granted under the, the law. Um, now, just one last point before I finish. Um, just one, I promise it's very, very short. Um, I need to just mention that, and I think some of you may have seen it on Twitter, that I had a research assistant during um, the preparations for the paper. Um, it's Wooster, the cat. I, you, many of you from you know, Cleary seminars um, and conferences are very well aware of. Um, so any typos, errors on the slides are his fault. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.